Hello and welcome to Vet Artspan. I'm Fred Johnson, your passport guide on this exciting and important creative journey. Vet Artspan is a project which is a part of Creative Forces, an initiative of the National Endowment for the Arts, in partnership with the U.S. Department of Defense and Veteran Affairs and state and local arts agencies. This is your Vet Artspan podcast. We're honored that you've joined us. Welcome. In this episode of our Vet Art Span podcast, guest host Kathy DeWitt talks with Bill Hutchinson, an Army combat veteran who found music to be a life-saving force while serving in Vietnam and throughout the rest of his life. Listen as Kathy and Bill walk through his incredible story. Well, I'm so happy to be here with my dear friend, a veteran and a beloved member of our community, Bill Hutchinson. Thanks for being here, Bill. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and to be a beloved member of the community. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you kind of brought it on yourself by being known as a musician, a promoter, an events manager for the city of Gainesville, and perhaps most of all for hosting and producing the annual Winter Solstice Concert, a benefit for the Veterans for Peace, which is one of the most uh, well-attended and popular events in the community of Gainesville, Florida, where we live. And it's been going on for how many years now? I think 34. This might be the 34th. And Scott and I, Scott Camille and I were talking about it one day and we realized that we had raised about a quarter of a million dollars for the peaceful projects of the Veterans for Peace over the run of the show. That's amazing. I just started doing it way back when, and I did a summer solstice peace concert too, but I didn't like schlepping instruments in the heat. And so <laughs> it ended up just being winter solstice. And then I had a chance to partner with the Veterans for Peace, and I went ahead and jumped at it. And so we have had a good partnership all along, and it's really kind of wonderful. And, you know, I have the best deal of all. All I have to do is raise the money, and I don't have to go to the meetings. <laughs> Well, so you did it yourself before you actually partnered with the Veterans for Peace? It was yeah. just something you, that you thought of doing? Yeah, you know, own? I've been pretty much a peacenik ever since I got home from Vietnam. I was a combat infantry veteran, and so I take this very seriously, and I promised myself I would not forget. Well, and also, I'm curious about, even before you went to Vietnam, were you already a musician or artist or into the arts? Did you grow up in a musical family? Um, my family loved music. And my Uncle Bobby played piano. I played the drums from when I was doing oatmeal boxes on the kitchen floor and, and racing in first grade to be the one to get the red snare drum, you know. I mean, it's been with me as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. But um, in the 60s, I was playing drums in bands at the fraternity houses at the University of Florida. And one of my Leeds players said, You know, Bill, you're not going to be able to pull your drums out on the bus and sing Kumbaya. Let me show you a few chords. And so now I uh, play a lot more guitar than I play drums. So you already knew you were going to go to Vietnam. Is that why he made that comment to you about playing it on the bus? No, 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 no. (laughs) No, this was before I knew that I would have to go. This is before I really was a poor student at the University of Florida and ended up going. My experience of being a student was interesting because... I ended up not being able to avoid the draft because I was a poor student. When I came back from Vietnam, I went to Santa Fe and then back to the University of Florida where I made straight A's because I had learned to focus. (laughs) But 
I didn't do it at a time when it could have saved me from going to Vietnam, unfortunately. Hmm. But fortunately, which is part of the story, of course, because I enlisted for band because I was a professional musician playing drums on Palm Beach for rich white people. Yunk chink, yunk chink, yunk chink, yunk chink, hmm. yunk chink. And one of the Palm Beach lawyers says, man, you need to enlist so you can do what you do for your country that you already do well. And I said, okay, and then they put me in the infantry. And so oh. I never trusted the government again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. And what year was that when you, when you went? Uh, I went in in June of 67. So I got to Vietnam at Tet of 68. Wow. Right. And so it was intense. It was really happening. It was really happening then. And I got to be an infantryman. Um, you know, it's worthy of mention that for every infantryman in the field, there are 11 people doing support in the rear areas. Mm. And that means that the ones under the most dangerous conditions are the ones in the field, and they become the expendables. Mm. They are used up and then resupplied, used up and then resupplied. And there are, are varying degrees of safety going back from the fire bases to the LZs right down to where the general lives and the hospital is and I went from being out in the field in the worst possible conditions to when I got malaria being in the rear area in the best possible conditions so I had the whole range of experience and since I had 90 days temporary duty I made myself so valuable that I would never be sent back to the field because it was dangerous out there. It was dangerous and it was unpleasant. And my friends were getting blown up and shot and dying. So for you, malaria was kind of a blessing and a curse? Yeah, yeah, more blessing than curse. I'm alive today. Hmm. You know, I think that three of my original company made it through unscathed. I saw one of the guys in the hospital um, on one of the band tours that I led, and uh, he said that they had gone back to a night logger, which is something you don't do. A third time, they had gone to the same top of the hill and dug in, and they had, somebody had planted a 250-pound bomb. And when they circled it again, for the night that was command detonated. So my friend described being blown through the air in absolute silence, because his hearing was gone, of course, and trying to grasp at bushes to pull himself down to earth. So other guys disappeared completely. Mm. This was the sort of thing that was going on out there that in any way of thinking is absolutely horrific. And here's a parenthetical. I just read a book by Bill Malden, who was the cartoonist from World War II, drawing Willie and Joe, the guys in the infantry. It's just a reprinting of the things he had put in Stars and Stripes, but very little talk in between the cartoons, except he's saying over and over again, what these guys have been through has changed them. When they come home, you cut them some slack because they've seen things that you can't imagine. And so when I tell the story of that bomb, 
it's unimaginable. So how about you? When you went to uh, Vietnam and you weren't able to go and do the band thing that you'd been hoping for. <laughs> that I had enlisted for, that I had signed an agreement about. Go ahead. Did you somehow manage to bring music along with you anyway? Maybe because the guy had taught you to play guitar? When... Yes, I did manage to play a little music. But an interesting thing in this whole process was that two of the most famously mean sergeants that I encountered in my whole army career felt that I had been screwed. And both of them said, is this true, Hutch? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, top it is. Okay, I can't change it now, but I can get you a command military turn show if you can pass the audition. So the first one, the meanest man on the hill at basic training, took me over to the band and said, I need you to audition this guy. And they said, yeah, we'd love to have you. And then uh, the orders had already come through for Vietnam. And then I'm out in the field and I'm back. And my first sergeant says, is this true? And I said, yeah. And so when I went back to the field, the next time I cut little sticks when we were cutting your fields of fire so nobody can sneak up on you, you know, (laughs) you hide in a hole Mm -hmm. or next to it. And but you cut down the brush in front of you. And so I made drumsticks every night. And I didn't peel them, so they're white and show. Uh, and I didn't quite touch my knee, but you don't need to do that to get your chops back up. So I went and I passed the audition. And I got a command military touring show. And I got malaria. And so I crawled out of a bunker one night when we were in the rear area and out to the road crawled because I could not stand up. And a Jeep stopped and they picked me up and they took me into the... 312th Medical Evacuation Hospital in uh, July, and they wrapped me in ice water sheets and put fans on me for a couple days, and the fever broke, and I woke up, and I opened my eyes, and there was a woman there, a nurse, (laughs) and I said, I think I've been away, and she said, oh, yes, you have, (laughs) so little did I know that I would soon be in that world playing music for the doctors and nurses. So I went from the worst possible to the best possible situation. Because once I got malaria, I still had that 90 days temporary duty that I had gotten for the command military touring show. So I had that piece of paper and I went into the special services officer at the division level and said, sir, I've been a musician all my life. I've been a disc jockey. I know the business. What do you need? And he said, well, Follow, follow that guy around today. He's uh, the entertainment coordinator. He's getting short. Maybe you'll take his job. Hmm. So I took his job. Wow, entertainment coordinator. Entertainment coordinator for 25,000 men and 25 women. And so it was absolutely wonderful. And I was able to have the perspective of what these guys were going through in the field as opposed to the generals, you know, and the guys in the field who were putting their lives on the line every day. So I was able to bring them into the picture as far as entertainment was concerned. And that was very gratifying. So I became a strong advocate for getting entertainment out to the troops. What are some of your, maybe one of your favorite experiences? When, like maybe one of the first times you did it was sort of eye-opening? and There are a few things that really stand out. I mean... Yes, we went out and um, we had two bands, a soul band and kind of a psychedelic band, Luther T. Stone Memorial Society. Because it was like late 60s, early 70s, right? Yeah, 68, 69, Mm -hmm. 70. So we would go out to the LZs and play 
purple haze and pop a purple smoke, you know, <laughs> and which ended up being a bad idea because I was, you know, blowing purple snot for the next couple of days. It was not a good idea to do that without checking where the wind was coming from. But we would play these things and then the soul band would go out and I got to play drums with them. And man, there were some great people. Uh, Cornell Yates was Mr. C4 instead of Mr. Dynamite, you know. C4 is a plastic explosive and fabulous singer and entertainer. We got to go out there and play the songs that were popular at the time. And ones that come to mind are, you know, My Girl was a huge one. After a while, everything from Sgt. Pepper was absolutely on, mm. that we could do was on the thing. But um, the number one song was The Animals. We got to get out of this place. Wow. <laughs> They'd ask for that once mm. or twice, and maybe three times in the evening if mm. we were out there doing a concert. We got to get out of this place. If it's the last thing we ever do, we got to get out of this place. Girl, there's a better life for me and you. So, got out of the field and shared a desk with a sports NCO, non-commissioned officer, meaning sergeant, shared a desk with him. But then I said to my boss, um, you know, the biggest piece of equipment that you have is the amphitheater down there that the CB's built for Bob Hope. I need to be down there protecting it. I need to live there. And he said, oh, well, we'll get on one of the guys and get some cots and get, you know, a phone line and, and everything. So I went down there and became the denizen of this 15,000-seat outdoor amphitheater built for Bob Hope, who came every few years, maybe. But I lived in the dressing room, and my life was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, because I knew how bad it could get. And I went to Colonel Callahan, who will appear in this later on, if we have time, and it was the adjutant officer, and I said, Colonel, I don't know why we're waiting for people in Saigon to deign to send us music when I know a half a dozen people right in our division who are professional musicians. If you can get them out, we can put together some great bands and we can work on morale every single day. We can go to the hospitals and the landing zones. We don't have to wait for Saigon. We've got the people here. And he said, um, okay, Hutch, uh, tomorrow morning be up here at 0800 in your cleanest, best uniform, and we'll go see the general. And I said, okay. And so we went, and he said, Hutch, tell the general what you told me yesterday. I said, <laughs> yes, sir. Well, you know, and I just repeated myself, and the general said, hmm, you trust this guy, Colonel? He said, absolutely. He said, well, get him a plane, get him down to Saigon, and see, get him to scrounge some equipment so that we can put together these bands and start working on our own morale. Hmm. So there I was on this fancy plane going down to um, Saigon, picked up this and that, and had it shipped back up there and got up there and had a supply sergeant, Sergeant Fry Rear. He was a wonderful guy who had tried being out of the army for a while, but had to come back because he was giving everything away. That was what he loved doing. And so when he heard what I was doing, he said, Hutch, I heard you putting some bands together, so I just uh, uh, ordered you 12 bass drums. <laughs> I said, 
well, thank you, Sarge. <laughs> you know, he didn't know, you know, so all of us tried to play two and three bass drums for a while, but didn't work well. <laughs> and so anyway, we ended up with two different bands that toured constantly. And when Bob Hope did come to the amphitheater, I put my second in charge in charge and went out with the bands. Bob Hope comes along with a group and we weren't fond of him. We laughed at his jokes and we loved the women they brought. Almost cruel, they were so beautiful. But then the real star of the show came and that was Neil Armstrong, who had been standing in the back, Mm kind of watching things and smiling from time to time. And he came up to the front and he said, I've been to the moon and back and I can tell you, it doesn't mean anything unless we can learn to live together here on earth. And 15,000 of us stood up and cheered, making the peace sign, you know, with tears in our eyes, because he got it. Bob Hope didn't. He got it. Wow. So that was a pretty wonderful experience. That's amazing. Yeah. So it seems like the arts, music in particular, really changed the lives of all these people that you got involved in being in these bands and that's what they could do instead of being on the front and well yes that absolutely and it saved their lives in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. but i'll tell you what it also saved the sanity of the people with whom we connected Mm -hmm. because it was something from home and it was something good and true and real you know and it was music and it was music it was that universal language but it was also the language of enlightenment for a certain time in musical history. It went from the boy, just the boy-girl love to universal love, and all you need is love. Well, speaking of love in a war zone, you have an amazing story that I've always loved to hear about, a love song on the guitar that yeah. might have saved your life. Yes, it actually happened, and it's long enough now that it feels like it happened to somebody else, but I know it was me. <laughs> You know, and what happened was that for some reason, the army infantry unit that I, of which I was a member, got tapped to pull security for the Marines, the 3rd MAF Marine Amphibian Force compound in Da Nang. And we got to sleep on cots and there was a popcorn machine in the EM club. And from an environment of intense deprivation to popcorn in the EM club, this was this was good, man. And cots. Yeah, and cots. We slept on cots. And the incidents that you're talking about is part of our job of being there and being in the bunkers and protecting these generals was that we had to go out on sweeps at night. And that's where you, a squad goes out and you look for trouble. And so the last thing any of us wanted to do, fresh out of the field... You know, and having had trouble was make trouble. So we would, on the radio, say, Okay, we're over here now. Okay, we're over here now. But we weren't. (laughs) We had found a little village with an open area, a cement area in the middle, with about, you know, maybe a 20-inch wall that went around three sides. And the last thing we wanted to do was get their village shot up. So we were very quiet. We got there. And there were two kids sitting on this wall in the the town square with one of these guitars from Hong Kong. And I watched for a bit and then I handed my weapon to my friend and I took off my helmet 
and I walked over to them and made, you know, the sign of, you know, the prayer, hands together, palm prayer piece sign that's recognized over most of the world and held my hands out for the guitar. What was happening is they were playing Love Potion Number no. 9, but they were playing it with just two chords. And so it never resolved. So I put my hands on the guitar like this and went, I took a drink, you know? <laughs> and, um, oh, the light went on. Those kids just, you know, were so pleased. And, and they, I gave them the guitar back and showed them their fingers. And, you know, and so, do you know this song? Oh, he, Love Potion Number no. 9, right? Yeah. yeah uh, uh-huh. the, if I were to do this, could you sing it? Sure. Took my troubles down to Manamru. You know that gypsy with the gold tattoo. She's got a place down on 34th and Vine, selling little bottles of Love Potion Number no. Nine. See, so how can you do that without the E? Yeah, you can't. So that's the chord. One of the kids had a dad. It was uh, got cokes off the black market. And so we got some cans of Coke that were cold. <laughs> and we sat there and played music with them. And then we came back another night, you know, we're over here now, we're over mm. there now, you know. And and then the third night as we're going back, my little friend of the guitar comes out of the shadows and says, you know, come tonight, BC, wait for you. They crocodile, you buku sweat, you know, with the thumb across the throat thing. And I said, okay, thanks very much. Hmm. <laughs> and so we went a different way, not wanting to either be crocodiled or crocodile anybody else. Hmm. And so that was what happened with my E chord. But one that you might not know is that Colonel Callahan, who was my friend a serious friend in all this and who believed in me. We were practicing one night and doing... the Bob Dylan song. And so he's listening to it and I say, Colonel, come here, here are the lyrics. You can sing this one. (laughs) And he's an old boxer, an ex-boxer. And so he's kind of thumbing his nose and he's doing it in a boxing stance, you know, singing it. Once upon a time, dressed so fine, threw a bunch of dime in your prime, didn't you? <laughs> and so um, we went through it once, we went through it again, and then later that week, we played at the General's Mess at night, and we played our things, and then we got the colonel up there to sing. <laughs> Once upon a time, dressed so fine. And he really pulled it off. You know, the boxer stance and <laughs> hit his nose now and then and everything really made it work. And... After he was done, the song, the last thing, you know, hit, and the generals jumped up and they surrounded him, patting him and everything. And I thought, I'll never have to go back to the field now. Because he was the one in charge of troop strength. He was one who saved you from that and got the whole band thing going. That's and right. And made you the entertainment coordinator. Right. You followed. Right. Well, I, the, his, his, the captain his, made me uh, the entertainment yeah. coordinator. The colonel had said, what can you do for us, you know? Yeah. And so when he left, his replacement as adjutant officer who was in charge of troop strength, he said, there's one person in this division that must not go back to the field. Hmm. He's just too important for what he does here. That's Hutch, and you'll meet him. That's the power of music. I'm telling you, it saved my life. Not it's once, amazing. but twice. Everybody is a star. 
ended up trying to bring peace and comfort through music to everybody. But I was always very sensitive about veterans, of course. But I became convinced that even though it's absolutely necessary to raise objections to the beast that is the government and the war machine, you can't let that become the focus of your life. That if you can somehow make people happy, make them comfortable on their own planet, and make them feel like they're heard and understood, that there is something that is liberating in that and also tips the psychosphere on the planet from dark to light. And we're in the process of doing that now. There's plenty of darkness out there and you can certainly focus on that. And every once in a while, (laughs) you have to. Mm -hmm. But you turn toward the light and you move in that direction because this is so much a thing of consciousness. I do believe that we are here to bring light. And I would not know that had I not been through the darkness that was combat in Vietnam. Well, Bill, I'm really glad that you're out there bringing light to this world in the many ways that you do. You're just one of the most amazing people I know. And you're especially one of the most amazing veterans I know with your lightness and your positivity and just the way that you, what you choose to focus on. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. And I had it explained to me once. Patience Mason wrote a book called Recovering from the War. And it was a book about post-traumatic stress disorder, which had only been talked about by the professionals who were talking to each other. And Patience wrote a book explaining that war changes a person. And so she said, can I interview you for my book? And I said, okay. And we met in a Vietnamese restaurant, which was interesting. First time I had been in one since Vietnam. (laughs) And she said, well, let me tell you what happened to you. And I said, oh, okay. (laughs) She said, there are two ways that people react to traumatic stress. One is by a sort of regression and saying, just kill them all, let God sort it out. And the other is by psychosocial acceleration. And that's what happened to you. Hmm. Psychosocial acceleration. Don't you love that? I do. (laughs) (laughs) Explains a lot, Lucy. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I would not trade the experience now, although I would have traded it any day of the week. When you were there. When I was there. But I am grateful every day is a bonus day. And one more thing that may or may not fit in this. Life, to me, is a continuing saga of learning to trust. One of the most amazing things in my life happened in the field. We were out there with bullets flying and stuff going off. You don't know how loud stuff is. That's that's stress-inducing in itself, you know. And then after the first few times of high explosives, you're always expecting it. So it's stress-inducing. Just the silence is stress-inducing because it's about to be punctuated. So anyway, I hated my life. I hated being out there. I love my brothers, but I hated the life out there. So I put in for R&R, 10 days away. You bet. I want it. Okay, I want it. Well, we haven't heard yet. I want it, you know. And so I'm railing at fate that I have not gotten my R&R. And it's taking for freaking ever, as we would not have said in Vietnam. Um, 
And finally, it comes in. I leave for Hong Kong. And the next day, my company walks through Fresh Agent Orange. And my senior medic at that time lives in this town. And he's in the middle of his third chemo Mm. for different cancers that are a result of that day that I missed by one day. Wow. So that being the case, how can I not trust? You trust the universe. You have to trust the universe, though it's not easy for me. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm getting better at it. Well, I think you're doing great. Well, thanks. It takes one to know one. Thanks for coming and being willing to tell me about your experiences. It's been great hearing this. I've heard a lot of things that I didn't know about you. And I appreciate your willingness to share. I'm glad to do it, and I respect what you guys are doing. And uh, if I can be of help, let me know. I'm Kathy DeWitt for Vet Arts Band. Thanks for being here. Mm-hmm.